Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly Podcast, brought to you by HypeBot.com. Thank you to Bruce and everybody over at HypeBot for sponsoring Absolutely. us every week. Um, as always, I'm one of your two co-hosts, Michael Brandvold, and I'm joined by Jay Gilbert. How are you doing, Jay? Doing great, Michael. Thank you. Welcome back. You were, you were off yeah, last week. I, I had a week off, but I'm back. I'm caffeinated. I'm ready to go. Ready Let's to go. do this. So we got a special guest joining us this week. We do. We have uh, Daryl Friedman. He's a chief industry government and member relations officer for the Recording Academy, and he oversees a company's advocacy, membership, and industry relations division, and he's been doing it for quite some time, and he's here to talk about uh, uh, quite a few things, but um, what I'd really like to pick his brain about is the uh, District Advocate Day for uh, 2017. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I like being here. appreciate it. Thank awesome. You. So, so, so tell so, us. Yeah, tell us about this Advocate Day. What is it? Well, if you think about musicians and songwriters and producers and engineers, they're busy people. They have their their day jobs. They're in the writers' room. They're in their studios. They're on tour. So imagine um, between a thousand and two thousand of them stopping what they're doing, and wherever they are in the United States, they go and they storm their member of Congress during the recess when Congress is home. They storm their local office as a constituent, as a voting person, as essentially their boss, and say to them, we're in your district. We, this might not be Nashville. This might not be Los Angeles or New York. But wherever we are in Scottsdale or Santa Fe or, or you know, South Dakota, North Dakota, we have members. They talked in all 50 states to their members of Congress to petition them to support them and make sure music creators can be compensated fairly. It is the largest grassroots movement for music. In fact, we haven't found any industry that can mobilize uh, people the way that music people have been mobilized for District Advocate Day. Has it been effective? Have you found that that kind of get in your face, have that conversation, I'm a voting constituent, I'm here, you need to listen to my concerns, has it worked for you? Yes, it has. I'll give you some examples of how it's worked. But um, anecdotally, we we started with the program in Washington. And we have a full-time office here of, of lobbyists and, and folks who advocate for music professionals. But we started a program in Washington called Grammys on the Hill that became a pretty big deal. It was um, members, major artists would come, members of Congress would, would put on their calendars well in advance. And it'd be sort of a lobby day in Washington. And so the District Advocacy Day, Advocate Day was really sort of a, a little sister to that. Let's say, what if we did something like that, but in the district? What we found is completely upside down of what we expected. The District Advocate Day has proven to be far more powerful than the Washington Advocate Day. And it's because members feel very close to their, again, I'll use the word boss, because the boss is somebody who hires you and who can fire you. And that's what a voter can do in a, in a district to their member of Congress. So they just feel a little more close to the, the the person who's their boss and during election year it's very close to that person and more sensitive to their needs when they come in, in the local way as opposed to us in Washington. I always say our best advocates are really not the folks here in Washington who do this full time. It's our 25,000 members across the country. So specifically to answer your question, what we found is the co-sponsorships, in other words, people signing on to the bills, promising to support them by putting their name on the bill happened in greater effect in, through the district day than through the Washington day. And we saw it just in the last, we've only done this uh, now, it was about a week ago that we had the district advocate day this year. And we're already seeing 
a lot of members of Congress coming on board, sponsoring those bills, supporting their constituents that hadn't before and hadn't even when we came to see them in Washington. So district grassroots advocacy is incredibly effective. Now, in, in the press release, it talks about some of the issues that um, you, you suggest creators are going to discuss on the Advocate Day. And, and the first one is fixing outdated laws. And, and it seems to me that's something that's always been an issue in the music business. Can, can you fill us in a little bit more about what outdated laws you're focusing on? What are the issues there? Well, some of the laws that impact how music creators are paid, compensated, go back to 100 years. Literally, 1909 was when the, some of the licensing rules were established. The reason that we have a mechanical license today, every songwriter understands a mechanical license is the reproduction right. If a record is sold or, or streamed, the reason it's called that is because a machine, a player piano, player piano. Was, was, right. was what was what was invented for, what that right was invented for. So we literally are still operating under a 1909 law for wow. songwriters. But even for artists and producers, um, the fact that the record industry came up after the broadcast industry. So the record industry had always been a little bit behind, and the broadcast industry had power before the music industry did. So even something as basic as a royalty for artists when radio plays a song doesn't exist in this country. Right. This is the only country in the developed world where that's the case. So for artists, songwriters, and producers, we're all basically operating under systems that are, some case years, in some case decades, in some cases century old. So we think this is not a bad time to consider updating that, and Congress has agreed with us. Are you looking at the individual rates that DSPs um, pay out or that YouTube pays out or kind of the, you know, the value gap there is that, I mean, cause it's, it's on the minds of most musicians, artists, people involved in the industry. Is that an area that is of concern and one that you're addressing? Absolutely. It's a concern, especially in terms of YouTube's ability to, to get by with lower rates. But when we're talking about policy in Washington, the important thing to think about is that Congress isn't setting rates because we don't want them to be putting anything in law that would be permanent. What Congress does is set the parameters and the standards by which judges or the free market um, will look at those rates. So in the case of the legislation that we're pursuing today, we're basically saying to Congress, look, we know the music industry is overregulated and we have a lot of rates that are decided not in the free market, but by judges or PRO, rate courts, things like that. But anytime someone is setting a rate for music, they should at least try to approximate what the free market would would provide. So there's a standard in law called the willing buyer, willing seller standard for, for the nerds among us. And what we'd like to see that be across the board so that every judge, everybody deciding a rate would say, what would the fair market provide if this was gonna be in a market? The unique issue with YouTube is that they have some, an additional protection in law that no one else, none of their competitors have. Spotify doesn't have and Apple doesn't have. And it's a safe harbor, essentially. Because back when the internet was basically bulletin boards and um, this new thing, AOL, was coming down the pipe at some point, the law was established that internet providers could have a safe harbor if they would just simply take down the material that was infringing when told. Well, no one anticipated YouTube or Google or any of the systems that we have today. So imagine what it's like for an independent artist. We represent the individual artists and songwriters, not the companies, but 
major record labels, they may have staffs of people who do this, but let's take an individual artist whose work is put up on YouTube. They are individually responsible for protecting their work, policing the entire inter internet to make sure that their work is taken down. Then they find it and they tell YouTube through their not, not easy process, no. take it down and another user puts it up the next day. So you whack have artists, it's whack-a-mole. You have artists and songwriters literally policing the entire internet. And so because of that, when industry does deals with YouTube, they generally get by with lower rates because the industries know the music's going to get up there one way or another. So we're, we're not talking about just outdated laws that are 100 years old here. We're talking about some fairly recent laws that are actually pretty outdated as well. That's true. I mean, it, we know that Congress will never be as fast as technology. It's just not the way the system works. Sure. So what we'd like to see is that Congress set a parameter where no matter what the technology is tomorrow, we don't know where is this going. Tomorrow it might be a chip implanted in our brains that can play the music in our heads and, and we won't need earphones anymore. But to whatever it is, that anybody who's decided the right either can do it as a transaction in a free market between the creator and the business or if it's a rate-setting process to try to mimic the free market. If Congress can set those parameters in place, they'll be technology neutral for years, decades to come. But we just have to make sure the law gives creators a fair shake. What is what is your hurdle? I mean, what is the opposition? The things that you're describing to me and the things I've seen in the press release seem to be fair. They seem to be very well thought out. There isn't anything radical or crazy there. Um, what, what's your challenge? Well, people don't want to pay more. People don't want to pay the fair market value for music if they can get the music cheaper. So and we're not talking about consumers here. We're talking about businesses, billion-dollar businesses. YouTube, like Google, radio. Yeah, really wealthy businesses, the broadcast sure. industry, which has some of the highest margins. When you think about any other business, what their cost of services, cost of goods would be, you know, sometimes it's 50 70 80%. A grocery store buying the raw materials to sell. What these services, they don't want to pay anything or they want to pay one or two percent. And I think the most, um, in terms of opposition, I think the most egregious has to be the National Association of Broadcasters. This is a lobby arm for the television and radio industry. They go around saying we should be paid whenever our content, we produce content on television, we should be paid fair market value. If someone else uses that content, like Seems a little cable, hypocritical. Yeah, they, we should be paid for that content. When it comes down to the artists and the producers... Um, they say, well, we're promoting you. And they say it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, but isn't Slacker and Pandora promoting them too by that argument? And if I have a club or a bar, I have to pay ASCAP, BMI, CSAC. Where, I mean, I have to pay for, if I'm making money off of somebody's creative work, I need to pay for that. Um, and there, I could argue that by playing your music in my bar, I'm promoting it, you know, and... Of course. Yeah, that's, that's a tough argument now, but it's been going on for so long, I guess it's going to be a challenge to kind of get people to think a different way. Well, it's falling, it's falling more and more on deaf ears in Congress. I think Congress understands now with every other pat platform paying internet radio, satellite radio, even the, the cable stations on your television that carry music, and every other developed country in the world radio industry is paying it's a little hard for one radio station to say well we believe this is promotional we believe this is symbiotic and as most people will tell you in any relationship when only one party believes it's symbiotic 
getting some <laughs> Daryl, is there is there pushback from all of the people who are paying to say, well, we don't want to pay. Let's change the laws so we don't have to pay. So all of us don't have to pay. Actually, no. I think the, the, the players in the digital space are generally being good actors, and they do acknowledge that they have to pay both the artist, songwriter, as well as the producer. So I, I think what I'd like to see more of those organizations do is, is help us fight the broadcasters, because it's in their interest to have a level playing field. They shouldn't be competing with an old-fashioned radio that is paying nothing. But I think many of these services feel that radio will at some point go away, and then that, that problem will solve itself. But for the most part, we argue about rates, we argue about rate standards, in some cases, we argue about whether an, a sound recording before 1972 is under the law, but they are basically saying we know we have to pay something, and we know when we do want to pay something. Yeah, I think there's a misconception in this country about, you know, say streaming, like your Spotify's and your Apple Music's, you know, that, you know, radio is still the number one way people discover music it's still massive and even though there's millions of people who are using streaming youtube all of that radio is still viable and it's still powerful am and fm and for a lot of people it's it's free it's not xm serious right they've got it in their car and yeah they have to listen to some ads but they they feel that you know it it's free. It's there. It's. I guess my point is, it's still a massive business, and these artists need to be compensated for their work being used on it. Sure, and I think when you talk to radio people, and I do have behind-the-scenes conversations with radio executives, and they they understand the future is not on their side. They understand that these services will become dominant, but for the time being, you're absolutely right, Jay, that we have a situation where the dominant um, platform is still broadcast radio in most of the country, and they know that that's not going to last forever, but as a matter of basic fairness, we want to see this addressed today. Now, you said that Congress agrees with you. What do you have like a, a, a roadmap, a timeline in front of you? How long do you think it could take to actually make some of these changes? Well, um, the timeline that we've been looking at is a six year period, and I'll explain why that's sort of the basic framework for, for us thinking about this issue. But think about this this issue, long before I was born, long before either of you were born, artists have been asking about this and talking about this since there have been records. People have been complaining that people can use. It's the only it, think it's the only example in our American economy where one party can use another party's intellectual property without permission or compensation. So Bing Crosby was complaining about this. Frank Sinatra was talking about this issue. But in the modern era of this fight, it's a six-year fight, and the reason is because the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in Congress—that's the committee that oversees copyright. He set out, he has a six-year term limit as chairman, assuming that the Republicans keep the House, which they have done for the past six years. So Chairman Bob Goodlatte of the Judiciary Committee has said at the outset of his, of his assuming that role, handing that gavel, that he wants to review the Copyright Act and specifically called out music licensing. He is now in the last year and a half of that six-year term. And during the first four and a half years, we had a number of hearings. We had our own CEO as well as artists testify before Congress. We've had a number of uh, roundtables around the country and a lot of fact-finding. 
Now he's in the point where he has to draft legislation and get it passed before he's done. So we believe the timeline on this really is the end of next year when that six-year term expires and <clears throat> Chairman Goodlatte will have want to have something to show for his tenure as chairman. Interesting. I know I hear a lot about pre-1972. Um, can you speak to that a little bit and, and tell our viewers what that means and why it's important? Well, currently, the, the digital right, the performance right for sound recordings, now we're talking about the for the artist and the producer, the record itself, the, this is not uh, for the songwriter and the publishing, but that right was just established in 1972, so that that there was a copyright in the work of a, of a record. What some services have tried to um, tried to exploit, essentially, is that because when the performance right was established for digital radio in the late 90s, they're saying, okay, that's fine. We now have a performance right for Sirius XM, internet radio, et cetera. But since the copyright didn't exist until 1972, any work prior to that doesn't apply. Now, we dispute that interpretation. Imagine, look at Sirius XM's playlist. Look at their channel lineup. The 50s channel, the 60s channel, the, the Beatles, Beatles channel. channel. Yeah. So all of those channels, they claim exemption from paying digital performance royalties. Most of the digital services have come around to um, a compromise on that. And there's a bill called the Classics Act that addresses that. It's a compromise with many of the players, including Pandora, who've been a good actor on this front. So good. I think... You know, certainty is important to the services as well. There's a lot of lawsuits in states about these issues. I'm sure you've heard about the turtles, Flo and Eddie, sure. lawsuits on this very issue. So rather than have this be an unsettled, ambiguous point of law, some of the services have said, okay, pre-72, we can find a compromise here. And I think we will. Sirius XM is still an outlier, but we hope they'll come aboard as well. Well, it, <laughs> isn't there something related to this pre-72 where the artists are also suing their record labels related to their recordings pre-72? No, for the pre-72 issue, it really is the artists um, and artists and or labels suing the services um, who are not paying for pre-72. Okay. There are other, there are always lawsuits between artists and labels. There are always conflicts between artists and labels, but it's not over the pre-72 issue. Although certain <clears throat> artists have taken a different legal path than the labels have in terms of suing the, the services about pre-72. So that's why you have the record labels having one legal approach in some states and the Turtles, Flo and Eddie, having a different path. But um, generally, they're both saying the same thing, which is that there should be a right that goes to all recordings. Right. 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 Well, so, Daryl, I'm, I'm a member of the, the Academy. Um, Thank you. And even if I'm not a member, what, what can I do to help? You know, what are some things? Because... I believe in this strongly, you know, Michael and I, our clients are the people that are affected by this. Um, what can we do to help? Of course. Well, whether you're a member of the Academy or not, there's, there are ways for you to help. If you're an Academy member, Grammys in my district, or the, the district advocate day that we just had is the most powerful tool we have. But year round, we have opportunities where you'll get an email from us at the Recording Academy saying, here's an issue. It's going before this committee. It's going to be voted on tomorrow. Please call, please write, and we'll have a you know a very easy tool online for you where you can literally go to your Grammy.com um, account, yep. and there'll be a pre-populated letter, and it will tell you exactly who your member of Congress is, and you can send off an email or make a call. But even if you're not a member of the Academy, I encourage you to go to Grammy.com 
slash advocacy and see the information there and the tools that are available that we make available to anyone in the music community who wants to help join this fight. Awesome. This this, this, this is awesome. Are, are, are there any other key issues that you're really advocating for besides the outdated laws and the copyrights? Is there anything else that's, that's out there that's really important to artists? Well, there's, we've been talking mostly about congressional activity and the things that are, need to be changed by law, but there's actually something under the executive branch that um, that is very important to songwriters, and that's the Department of Justice consent decrees with ASCAP and BMI. ASCAP and BMI have been around for decades, and early in their lives, the antitrust division of our Justice Department felt that because they had such large market share, at the time there were only two of them, today we have four, right. at the time they had basically they were duopolies they had large market share and so they entered into agreements with them that they would be allowed to operate but they would have to engage in certain activities certain ways and those agreements are called consent decrees ASCAP and BMI are still under these consent decrees decades later even though we have competitors now CSAC and global music rights right. that aren't completely in a free market and have taken market share away from ASCAP and BMI so one of the things that we as a community have gone to Justice Department about is to say, let us have some flexibility in these consent decrees that were written in the 1940s and see if you can maybe update them a little bit and modernize them and give us some, some flexibility and freedom. What the Justice Department did instead was make it worse. They, they added a new interpretation to the consent decrees that no one had ever even operated under, which was that every PRO who normally had been licensing just their share because two writers on a song, one might sure. be ASCAP, one might be BMI, they'd each license their fraction to the user. The Justice Department has said that any PRO has to license 100% if they license any of it. So this created a whole new burden that basically upended the entire way performing rights organizations oh were operating. And now we have a new team in the Justice Department. The, the new head of the antitrust division, Macon Delrahim, is certainly somebody who understands the importance of intellectual property. He worked for Senator Orrin Hatch, who's been a champion of music. Yeah, because he's a songwriter, right? He's a songwriter himself. He gets it. So we, we hope to see a change in that interpretation. But that's not a congressional play, but it's very important to wow. songwriters that the consent decrees be updated. Do you think the pendulum will swing back? I do. I, I do. I think a lot of things, a lot of good things will happen, thanks in large part to just the voices of creators being raised in the past six, eight years. It's really been phenomenal just how much um, Congress is hearing how important this is to their constituents. Just to give you a, an anecdotal evidence of that, the first year we did the District Advocate Day, we had 100 people show up. This year we had 1,600 people. Wow. Wow. And we had all 50 states participating. Fantastic. So you can tell that creators are very much interested in having their voice heard and being active in this yeah. fight. So yeah. are, you, are, you, are you planning only one Advocacy Day a year? Or is that something that you hope to uh, expand upon? Well, we do um, two major activations a year, one in the district and one in Washington. So our next one will be in D.C. It'll be Grammys on the Hill, and we'll be celebrating 20 years of being in Washington, having a presence here. But throughout the year, we have other opportunities. We have a political action committee now. We okay. just formed last year. So people have been asking us, what else can I do? And we say, frankly, you can support the members of Congress who have been right on these issues and been fair on these issues. So the PAC, the Grammy Fund for Music Creators, is available to our members to give. And again, throughout the year, we have these um, action alerts. There are times that may not fall in October or April where we have our days, but it might be that May or March, you, you see that 
something's going before a committee to be voted on, then we want to make sure our members act right then and, and light up the switchboards and fill the email boxes that they're members of Congress. Yeah, that's great. Great awesome. work. Awesome. And and can you, Daryl, can you give us again the uh, the URL for people? It's Grammy.com slash advocacy. And you'll find a lot of information there about the issues. You can learn, you can take action, and you can see when the next um, advocacy day will be. Awesome. awesome. Fantastic. Appreciate Great you so stuff much you're working taking on, the Darryl. time out here. Thanks for letting me have a chance to talk to your audience about these yeah. important issues. Good luck with that. We'll help any way we can. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Um, good conversation. Great, yeah. great information. And, you know, I think it's definitely in the best interest of every every artist to get involved to some extent. This is your career. This is your future. And you should be paid for it. And we're the only country in the world that, you know, for example, doesn't pay artists for when their song is played on the radio. And look, we all know that getting your song on the radio can really help you. But these people are making a business. Um, using your intellectual property. And when you're on Pandora or Apple Music, you get paid and you get paid fairly. It should be that way, not only with radio, but also there's a lot of work to be done with YouTube. Oh, yeah, a lot of work. YouTube is that giant that everybody seems to ignore while all the attention is put on streaming services. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, go out, head over to the Grammy site, see what you can do to help. Um, we haven't done a, you need help with your digital strategy in a while, Yeah. but how about, how about this? Let me throw this one out. If you spend a thousand dollars to buy Spotify plays, YouTube views, Twitter followers, Facebook likes, SoundCloud, SoundCloud. Plays, um, any Instagram likes, whatever. You need help with your digital strategy. You really do. You know, you shouldn't be paying for any of those, number one. Number two, whether it's $1,000 or $1, it's not what you want. It's not legitimate. A lot of these things will get you pulled off of these services. But more importantly, it doesn't work. You need to have a social footprint that's honest, that there's some integrity there. Because if you're marketing to these people you don't want just some name that's on there that's not a real person or is you know uh, that you've paid for that's not legitimate that's not going to help your career and those numbers aren't going to be real yeah it's it's a total waste of your money and it can't come back to haunt you yeah um you know you buy those numbers you get a high number of likes a high number of plays you might wake up tomorrow and and the service has wiped them out because all of these companies are going through cleaning out fake fake likes, fake plays, fake streams, whatever. Um, you might just lose those. You may lose your account. Um, you know, it's a risk not worth taking. But I, I think it all, it all stems from the MySpace days where, where people were getting signed because of MySpace followers. Oh, my God, look at how many people are following that band on MySpace. Let's sign them. Right. Well, that doesn't work today. Anybody who's going to do any serious business with you agents um promoters record labels marketing people like jay or myself distribution sure Sure, we go in and look at numbers but we are also the only factor we are we are pretty sharp in being able to determine fairly quickly if those numbers are fake 
That's right. It's not the only factor. And I forget who said it, but we talked about this on the show one time. The best indicator you know, to how well you're doing is having that lineup around the block to see one of your shows. Yep. You know, that's one of those things that you can't really fake very well. And we look at, you know, Michael and I look at YouTube spins. We'll even look at bands in town. We'll look at Shazam's. We'll look at all those different metrics. And they're a great point of reference, but that's about it. There's a lot more to it. Streaming is a meritocracy. It's about the quality of the track, you know, agents for booking tours and things. They look at those things, but it's not the only criteria. So yeah. don't, don't do the fake thing. It'll yeah, come back. I, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I can go in and if I land on your Spotify page and I see you've got an album and 10 tracks and one track has 500,000 plays and the other tracks have six red flag, red flag. Especially if I've never heard of you, especially if you're not like somebody who's been getting major radio airplay, if you're completely unknown, that's a red flag. If I go into your YouTube and you've got 20 videos, one of them has 2 million plays and the rest of them have 300 apiece and you've got no comments across them, it's a red flag. Somebody bought them. If you've got 100,000 likes on Facebook and you post once a week and you have nobody commenting liking or sharing red flag i i, I know we look at those things it's Absolutely. not real it's not real it will have no impact you've just wasted money and it has not furthered your career so yeah be careful with that stuff people yeah and go visit hypebot hypebot.com so that's it music biz weekly podcast we're out see you next week <laughs>